Hello? I'm really honored uh, to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate. We are just coming off of uh, our camp that we have our own church started a camp. Really, this is about the same year we joined the OPC, and so we haven't really made that transition yet. We're still trying to work it out in terms of uh, people from our church you know, coming to this camp and so on, although we do have more coming uh, this year, I think, than we had last year. And also, I'd like to announce, uh, before I get started, um, I want to take the onus of responsibility off of Bill Adsit's shoulders when you come to recognize that the outlines that you have before you are completely defunct, obsolete, and vanishing away. We, uh, Bill had talked to me, uh, you know, about, I don't know, six weeks ago, and he said, can I get the outline by the end of May or something? And I said, sure. And I, I had met with, uh, with Al about what I was going to talk about. And, um, you know, you, you, of course, realize that a lot of pastors uh, regurgitate their sermons for these particular events because you haven't heard all my sermons. So I, can just, I just got a whole bunch of them. I, can, I don't have to study at all. It's right there on the computer. And Al actually encouraged me in uh, thus regurgitation. And as I began to work through uh, the outline that he had given to Bill, uh, I began to realize that I became enslaved to the outline. I began to realize that uh, the particular audience that I'm going to be speaking to this week is really uh, quite unlike any audience that I've spoken to. And I've spoken to a, a lot of different uh, audiences. And uh, the series that uh, we were going to use was a series that I called uh, Remedial Christianity, which was actually published in Chinese, and uh, which led to my trip to China. And uh, it, the whole, the whole uh, sermon series, the whole book, was um, about really remedial Christianity, and, uh, and a lot of it was kind of what I went through, and unlearning the wrong things and relearning them the right way, which is what remedial what, what that means. It doesn't mean that you don't know something. It means you know it incorrectly, and you need to unlearn it and relearn it, which is really kind of a worse place to be than not knowing anything. Uh, you know, if you're any builders here would know that they'd much rather build on a vacant lot than try to rebuild a house that is, uh, you know, in shambles. And uh, so anyway, I started working through it. I had already given the outline to Bill, and I became enslaved to the outline. And I'm like, I've got to make this outline work. And I started thinking about really whom I'm speaking with here. And it's really not, I'm not really speaking to uh, the audience that I, that series was talking to. Uh, I'm speaking to people who I want, who, who in my opinion should be giving the same message to their friends. And that is really sharing the Reformed faith with the Christian friends. Be that as it may, uh, as I, I basically rewrote all the messages. And so they're all fresh. These are non-regurgitated messages, although I did borrow from myself when I thought it was appropriate. Uh, before uh, I go any further, I just want to let you know tonight, mainly what I want to do is uh, just introduce myself a little bit and uh, my history and the process that I went through in terms of arriving uh, where I am and, uh, and how that affected our church and what have you, because really I would like to see what happened to me happened to Christians uh, far and wide. I would like to see what happened to our church happen to churches in, uh, in our country and throughout the world. And so I, I just thought it would be uh, beneficial for me to share my story. Plus, I get to talk about myself, and that's my favorite subject. No, just kidding. But before I say another word, please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we do come before you thanking you that you've opened our eyes and our hearts to glorious and heavenly things. We pray, Father, that you would give us not only a heart, Father, for the lost, but for even our brothers and sisters in the Lord who could benefit, Father, by uh, the Reformed faith, by this progression through history where those teachers that you have raised up uh, in years past, have so benefited us. May we, Father, in turn be a benefit to our Christian friends with whom we come in contact with. I pray for myself. I pray my words would be sound. I pray for clarity of thought and presence of mind. And, Father, I pray for all of us that we would be strongly convicted to bring the glorious message of your truth, of your law, and of your gospel. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had a great experience last night. I went to a movie and I ran into a a pastor, another pastor, who had a similar background to myself. And he... um, he asked me a number of years ago, this was a, a, a wonderful question that he came up and asked me because he was a, a youth pastor just like I was a few years behind me. And every once in a while, you know, in, uh, this, he was a four-square pastor, still is a four-square pastor. And, uh, you know, they have everybody, a lot of people preach, and he was preaching. And he said he, uh, but we, he and I would get together and have theological discussions as I was going through my journey into Reformation thinking and um, he apparently somebody came up to him on a Sunday and asked him a question, and he gave an answer. And then the next week, somebody came up and asked him another question, and he gave another answer, and it dawned on him that the answer that he gave the second week was a complete contradiction to the answer that he gave the first week. So he called me on the phone, and he said, Paul, can we get together? I want you to disciple me because I'm theologically eclectic. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And so we started going through a process. And uh, again, his background, similar to my background, a four-square background. And uh, in time, he became very Calvinistic in his soteriology. And he also uh, gave up his dispensationalism, and he he changed his, his, um, his eschatology. Although uh, we're still working on his pneumatology, his view of the Holy Spirit, and his ecclesiology, and a couple other things. Nonetheless, I ran into him last night, and um, his associate, uh, who he had just hired, because, let me just tell you this, so he he finally gets his own church, and he asked me to go to preach at his church, and I preached at his church, there were probably about 80 people there, or 90 people, and, uh, you know, he goes, tell them what my job is. You know, preach on what the job of the pastor is. So I got up and I preached on, you know, that he should have a study. It's the pastor's study, and he should be studying and so on. Anyway, six years about, that was about six years ago. Now his church is one of the top 20 largest churches, growing churches in the United States. I mean, his church is in the thousands. He's just taken off. It's just taken off, which I think is interesting because I think he feels bad for me because our church is so And we were having lunch, and he said, he's trying to help me. He goes, Paul, you know, what's your vision? What's your vision for your church? And I said, well, it's to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments and exercise discipline when necessary. Okay, and then we just kept eating and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> but I met him the last night and, and we, he, has, he has an associate he just hired and it's a similar thing. Now this guy... Uh, is about 10 years older than I am. And we all waited tables together at a restaurant about 25 or 30 years ago. And this guy wasn't a Christian. And some of you know Mick Herzl. Some of you know Mick. He's an elder in our church. He, he wasn't a Christian. He's an elder now at our church. He waited tables at that restaurant. Another Assembly of God pastor waited tables at that restaurant. I mean, we had a whole bunch of people. Most of them weren't even Christian. I think I was the only Christian at the time. But anyways, this guy became a, a believer, and he went through the whole four-square system and he became a pastor of a church as well. And, um, and, but I, we'd get together, and unlike my other friend, he would not talk theology with me to save his life. I would try to engage in some type of theological discussion. He'd make a joke and he'd just move on. He just didn't want to talk about it. Then he became a senior pastor... Uh, and his church had a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and we'd get together and talk. And, he, you know, he wanted to talk about how things were going, but he didn't want to talk theology. And finally I explained to him, I go, well, I think one of the problems is you don't understand biblically what your job is. He goes, well, what do you think my job is? And I, I explained to him, similar to that sermon I gave, I think your job is to study the Word of God, to administer the sacraments, to exercise discipline if, ne- if necessary. You know, I went down kind of this list, and he was sta- sitting there, and his associate walked by. His name, I think his name was Ed. He goes, hey, Ed, get in here. And Ed walked in. He goes, okay, tell Ed what you told me. <laughs> so I started explaining it to Ed. And what happened was it, it, things got really bad at his church. It became a really difficult situation because in his particular situation, a great guy, but his church was built upon his very wonderful personality. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. But the church, was, the shoulders, his shoulders carried that church. It wasn't at the theology of the church. It was his personality and his love and his tenderness. And it was a big counseling session every Sunday morning. It was like therapy rather than a church service. And it started to weigh on him and weigh on him. And finally, about um, 
six months ago, he had decided to leave that church and he's going to now be hired at this other growing church because they have so much money now, they can hire whoever they want to do whatever they want. So they hired him there. And in the meantime, we're uh, talking. I go, well, look, it, just do me a favor because he won't talk theology. Just, I got some tapes on the Westminster Confession. Can you, will you just listen to him? And he had tasted a little bit of the joy of a biblical ecclesiology. Like he enjoyed that because it helped, you know. So he goes, okay, I'll listen to him. Now, this is a series I did on the Westminster Confession that's 33 tapes long. So I gave him, I walk in with this, you know, this, like, these, this gigantic loaf of bread looking thing of tapes. And he goes, what's that? I go, these are the tapes. He goes, I thought it was like three tapes. He goes, I have to listen to you? Did all the... So anyway, as time went on, he called me up. He goes, you know, I'm on tape seven. This is unbelievable. I'm on tape 13. I can't believe what I'm hearing here. You see, he's read the Bible over and over and over. But he, doesn't know, he never understood how it all worked. You know, he's probably pushing 60. He doesn't understand how it all works. He's been a believer for 25 years. Tape 25, tape 30, tape 33. It's de- he's developed a little bit of an issue with his wife right now. You know, she's still kind of got the four square thing going. But it's like it's changed his life. I ran into last night to this pastor of his church. And he goes, I want, you to, th- I want to thank you for converting him. And I thought that's interesting. Because I haven't been able to get him to go through the tapes. Nonetheless, my point here is that there is in Christendom, in Western evangelicalism, uh, those who are ripe and ready to hear what I think most people in this room might consider to be sound, Protestant, historical, biblical Christianity. And yet at the same time, it seems like the churches that are winning the day, the churches that are getting the numbers, the churches that are really... Uh, uh, being uh, representative in terms of what's going on in our culture are those who have uh, poor theology. Every time something uh, happens, you know, 9-11 happened, and just the amazingly bad theology that came out by the religious leaders explaining what took place at 9-11. And all you have to do is walk through a Christian bookstore. I walked through a Christian bookstore when I was just kind of becoming more reformed and figuring out where we were going to go. And I, I walked up to the manager of the bookstore. And I said, do you have a copy of the Westminster Confession? And he said, the guy was in a kid. I mean, he was like in his 50s. He goes, I'm not really familiar with that one. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, and I, my same reaction was, I've I got to not react here. You know, I've got to not... Because probably if you asked me 15 years earlier, I wouldn't have been familiar with it either. Let me tell you a little bit about where I, where I came from and how it affected me, and this isn't just for storytelling, it's because there was definitely a process that took place here. So you have to forgive me tonight if I don't exegete a text and go through that. I'm not really going to do that. What I'm going to do is uh, explain to you kind of the process that I went through, and then as time goes on, during the course of this week, I want to explain to you what's out there in terms of our Christian friends, what they're thinking, how they're affected, and also, I want to challenge, and this was hard for me, because I feel like, you know, I, feel I sit up at Santa Fe, I feel like a weak little lion looking at a den full of Daniels. You know, I, I feel like uh, whenever I go to Presbytery, I feel like theological riffraff, you know. I feel like these are the, you know, I've arrived, these are the guys. Every time I open my mouth, it's, it's, it's moderately embarrassing. <laughs> Jim Andrews is going, well, moderately is putting it lightly and so uh, I'm not really here, to, quite frankly, to teach you theology. I, I think the pastors that you have at your churches are well equipped to do that. I guess my goal for this week is to help you to understand uh, the modern evangelical mind and help you to, um, to take steps to engage in such a way to be a gem and to be a light and to be a city on a hill with your, quite frankly, your Christian friends. Uh, obviously, I'm not leaving the non-Christians out, but that's kind of the theme. The theme is sharing the Reformation faith, the Reformed faith with our Christian friends. Let me ask a question here, just in light of that. How many of you here are being raised or were raised in a Christian household? So you really came to faith as a result of being raised in a Christian household. Okay, uh, let me ask you this, if you put your hands down. How many of you are here 
because you moved from a non-reformed church or a non-reformed understanding of things to a reformed. How many lateraled? All right. Yeah. A lot of you. Okay. Let me ask you this question. How many of you came to faith as a result of a reformed evangelist? See, that's, that's, if I get invited again to be the speaker, that's what I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about that. Because, you know, uh, what we have here, what I deal with most of the time, which leads to this talk, is people walking into our church um, who have been at a non-denominational kind of, not really charismatic, some charismatic, not really charismatic, chapel of sorts. You realize they don't call them churches, right? They're fellowships, centers, and chapels, right? Christian fellowship, Christian center, Christian chapel. They don't want the word church because for some reason that doesn't work. So uh, I get a lot of people who've transferred from a chapel and you start working with them and you get somebody else's convert. And that, it really shouldn't be that way. We, we need to seize the day as far as bringing the message because so many people, if I could put it this way, come into the kingdom of God, uh, they're born again with, if you will, birth defects, theological birth defects. The gospel, the very first gospel they heard was a, a gospel that was amiss. The very first, and so they come in thinking that way, and you've got to work with that. And that's what I'm hoping to deal with, but I guess in the long run it would be nice if uh, we had a Reformed Harvest Crusade. You know, I always get invited to those things. You get those things, you know, come to Harvest Crusade, come to Promise Keepers, come, come, come. And I look and they don't have one Reformed speaker, ever. Never. They, what do they have? They have CEOs and football coaches. Why, why do I want to go listen to a football coach? Come on, everybody. I know, I, I know it's my full-time job to study the Bible and teach it well, but this guy is a football coach. His team took second in the NCAA championship. Why, why are we, this is the way we're functioning, though. But let me share you a couple of th- with you a couple of things. I wasn't raised in a Christian household. My parents were from Brooklyn. Uh, my dad was kind of a thug. You know, he was a longshoreman. He was a prize fighter. He was a gambler. In all seriousness, the only park I had been to by the time I was 12 was Hollywood Park. I'm not, it's, it's, a, it's a racetrack. <laughs> Tony's going, yeah, I know, I've been there. No, just kidding. So I wasn't really raised in a Christian household. Um, but for some reason, when I was about seven years old, I lived in Hermosa Beach. I walked around the corner to 3rd Street. I lived at 4th Street. I walked up to 3rd Street. And this is a, this Assembly of God owns this facility, right? I saw that outside. Is that right? Assembly of God? AOG? I walked into an AOG church at the age of seven. Assembly of God Tabernacle in Hermosa Beach. And for some reason, I went to that church as a seven-year-old all by myself for a year. I still have the Bible they gave me when I turned eight. I don't know why. I think I was like enamored with the flannel board or something. And that flannel stuff was just amazing. And there was a little old lady, and she must have befriended me. And, you know, but I went for a year. I still have the Bible. And then I didn't go to church after that. We moved to Redondo Beach, and it, it was too far. I didn't, had, wasn't driving yet. And I quit going to church. Oh. Just made me. Th- I, I, I like to pick and choose. Uh, I have to discriminate the stories I'm going to tell because I was just going to tell a story about how I used to drive to driver's education. That's the way my family worked. Dad, can you take me to driver's ed? He's like, here are the keys. <laughs> I don't really. Dr- I don't have a license. Yeah, whatever. I didn't think that way. Let me tell you something. There is a. There is a. I talk to all the kids here. There is a great, great blessing and value being raised in the covenant family of God. I don't, don't ever underestimate that. Don't underestimate the, just the, uh, the, the grace of God bestowed upon you because you were raised in, a, in, the, in the covenant family of God. I noticed uh, Roger talked about that last, last year. I mean, my kids, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're nine, seven, five, and eight weeks. And uh, the older ones don't understand even to this day. People don't go to church. Like, it freaks them out a little bit. They're like, I ran into somebody. They don't go to church. When I was, you know, until I I was seven, I didn't even know what a church was. I'm like, what is this place? I wandered in. I didn't know what it was. And I'll tell you something else, and this is an encouragement to the parents as well, but you children, you know, I'm well into my 30s. (laughs) It really bothers me how that works, how that joke works so easily these days. 
but to this day, and just leave, just you know, heed this for what it is. To this day, I I have to work hard at removing from my mind. Uh, I have to work hard at at really excavating from my soul those things that uh, found their way into my mind and my heart as one who wasn't raised in the household of God, as one who was raised in the world. And I can't tell you what an advantage it is for the children to not just have it be a de facto default that the world takes residence in your mind and heart. I can't tell you what an advantage that is because it's not something that goes away that easily. Matter of fact, like I say, it's something, you know, I know I war with every day, just getting my thinking right, getting my mind right, getting my heart right. It's not, it's not part of the natural flow that is my prayer for my children. Uh, be that as it may, I didn't go to church for a while, and then when I was about 17 years old, I was down at the beach where I spent a lot of time, and um, there was a buddy of mine, his, older, his, his dad was a pastor. He had three older brothers, and one of those older brothers saw me down there. And he came up and he shared with me, uh, you know, one of those little tracks, right? Uh, Four Spiritual Laws, I think it was. And, uh, you know, and I, he read it to me and looked at it, and I was like, yeah, you know, I think I believe this. I believe. Sure. And he pressed the issue, and he goes, well, maybe you can, you know, come to church Sunday. So I borrowed my dad's tie and his jacket, and I went to church. It was a PCUSA church. And I started going there. Kind of a more conservative PCUSA church as far as, as far as they go. But I remember at that period of time, now this is the tail end of the Jesus movement. And for those of you who don't know what the Jesus movement was, it was kind of like the, uh, the righteous stepbrother of the hippie movement. You know, there were all the hippies. And then there were all the hippies who were Christians. And they had the big giant wooden crosses and the beards and the Bibles that were all, you know, dog-eared and stuff. So it was that time, and there was a lot of evangelism going on. A lot of, you know, Bible thumpers, they called them. And they were a street evangelist. And I remember, because I was open to the idea of being a Christian, I was like a hot lead. And everybody was recruiting me. I had the Charismatics recruiting me. I had the Roman Catholics recruiting me. I had the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Presbyterians. There weren't a lot of Reformed people recruiting me. I don't know where they were. But I wasn't really, now that I think of it, I wasn't really recruited by the reform, but by everybody else. And and that's a very confusing time for a 17-year-old, going, where where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I think I was genuinely regenerate at the time. And the one thing that was a common denominator of all these organizations that were recruiting me was they all said that they believed the Bible. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons say, yeah, they believe the Bible. So I thought, okay... They all say they believe the Bible. The, the, the message that was delivered to me had Bible verses in it. And it seems to make sense that the only accurate representation we have of Jesus Christ must come from the Bible. So I better study the Bible to find out where I should go. So I started studying the Bible. That was the thing that I, well, even though I attended the PCUSA church, I started studying the Bible. Now what I found to be the case as I kind of went down this road, was that the Presbyterian church that I attended at the time had a doctrine that was, as I realize it now, far from Presbyterian. Now, again, it was a more conservative Presbyterian church, kind of like um, Lloyd Ogilvie's type of church. You know, it wasn't the, the real liberal kind, kind of a politically conservative church. But they were blatantly Arminian in their thinking. And for you kids, that basically is a teaching that teaches that we're saved as a result of, of God doing his part and man doing his part. It's a, the efforts of both. You know, God, God says, come on, and then you have to kind of on your own make that effort. Blatantly Arminian in their doctrine. And even though it was a Presbyterian church, almost everybody there was a Baptist, <laughs> including myself. They were doing infant dedications. They didn't want to do the infant baptism, and I can understand that because I was there during the pastor who had been there for 38 years and three interims, and none of them could explain to me why we should baptize an infant. The only answer I got was I went to seminary, and it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, well, okay, I can't really argue with that. They were largely antinomian. They didn't believe the law of God should be something that Christians should try to obey. Rather, you should be led by the Spirit. The law of God, even though there was kind of a wink at the Ten Commandments, the law of God was passe. Old Testament stuff. I remember being in an elders meeting where I was chastised for bringing up the Old Testament. 
as a proof text for, for a situation. They were um, dispensational in their thinking. So all the promises that you know, the Bible talks about for the church, they just said that's for the ethnic nation of Israel. They were premillennial dispensationalists, so they were really quite committed to um, like a cultural devastation. You know, they just were, you know, it's kind of the, maybe some of you have heard of J. Vernon McGee, right? Why polish the brass on a sinking ship? I mean, the world's getting worse and worse and worse. Why do anything to change it? And so they were, they were very dispensational in their thinking. They were anti-liturgy. Isn't that funny? I remember being that way. Anybody ever been anti-liturgy? Anti-liturgy. I was anti-liturgy until they changed liturgy that I liked. See, because everybody... (laughs) Because nobody's anti-liturgy. A lot of people are just anti-well-thought-out liturgy. (laughs) You know, in order for it to be spiritual, it's got to be spontaneous. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in your office during the week. The Holy Spirit only works when you put yourself on the spot in that moment. And so they were anti-liturgy. They were anti-confessional. To, uh, to quote the Westminster Confession or to quote any type of historic question was really a badge of dishonor. You were uh, revealing the dead orthodoxy that really was residing underneath you know, that, that, that exterior. Isn't it interesting what a faith, faithless term dead orthodoxy is? I mean, you really think about it. I mean, if, orthodox, if it is in fact orthodoxy, since we recognize that it is through the true teaching of the gospel that God brings life to men, to say that it's dead orthodoxy is to accuse, quite frankly, God of having a bad system of bringing his message to men. But they were anti-confessional and they were anti-church membership. They didn't believe in, I didn't believe in membership. I'm like, well, you know, why do I have to be a member? And even though, again, they were a Presbyterian church, uh, you didn't really have to join and become a member. And that's kind of where that church was. And I was with that. As a matter of fact, I came back from a trip to New Zealand. I went on a track tour to New Zealand in 1979-80. It was the Pan Pacific Conference Games. And I came back, and my two best friends had left that church in 1980. And uh, I, I wondered where they were. They started going to Branch of Hope, which at the time was a four-square plant. But the pastor kind of was uh, Calvinistic. And it wasn't really a plant, I guess. It was more of an amicable split because of his Calvinism, although everything else about him was still four-square. So I went there, and, um, and they had all the things I thought the church should be. There was no liturgy. Everything just kind of was flowing. You know, it was just a free-willing, flowing thing. And you have it in your mind that this is the way church should look. It should be spontaneous. People should be, you know, drinking Starbucks in the back row while church is going on and showing up late and leaving early. And talk. I mean, it was just very, you know, uh, but, you know, people getting up and saying things, you know, between songs, guys standing up and reading a passage and just exegeting it from the hip, you know, and all this stuff. And I thought, wow, the Spirit is so alive here. <laughs> and uh, I went there for a number of years, and then I went back to the... Uh, I was hired to be the youth pastor at the other church. So I've really only been at two churches my whole life. In the meantime, you know, as, as uh, Alan had mentioned, I went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I was with Athletes in Action. I was in their volleyball and track and field ministry. And, uh, and then I was a high school teacher, and I taught college for a while. When I was teaching high school, I, uh, I was leading a Bible study, and I just kind of was on my own. I was kind of a lone wolf thing. I, did, I, I was attending church, but I didn't really view it as essential. And it's, a, it's, a, it's advisable, you know, just like the tracks. It's all about sharing Jesus. And somewhere in the very, very end, it's like, oh, and by the way, it might be a good idea to find a church. It's just a very expendable commodity among most evangelicals, even though a lot of them will attend. They don't feel that it's a biblical mandate to attend. They just think it's a good idea to attend. So anyways, as time went on, I was, uh, I was with uh, Athletes in Action, and uh, I was leading this Bible study, and the Bible study got bigger and bigger and bigger. We had a lot of kids. And uh, we had, I don't know, it's been 60, 90 kids coming to this Bible study, and then this PCA church fired their youth pastor, and they asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said no. I remember the pastor came up, he goes, hey, we'd like you to be our youth pastor. And I said, you know, I really don't, I really kind of, I even said this, I really have a John the Baptist attitude about ministry. You know, I, I, don't, can't, I don't want to be constrained into your system, man. It was still the 60s, right? 
I've got to do my own thing. It's me and the Lord. We're doing our stuff, you know. And uh, he was like, well, we really want you to do it. And I said, well, I, can I do it for six months? And if I don't like it, I'll get out. No, I, I, here's what I said. I said, uh, I, I, I have my own way of doing ministry. And he said, you know what? As long as you do the Sunday evening meeting in our summer camp, you can do whatever you want. I'm like, well, it's hard to beat that. And even then I said, can I do it for six months? And if I don't like it, I'll resign. He said, fine. Well, I did it for six years. And I enjoyed it, you know, and it's youth ministry. And some of you know youth ministry is youth ministry, and it's exhausting, and there are a lot of camps. Camps, 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 yeah. And as time went on, the pastor of the other church, this, the church that I'm pastoring now, he um, resigned. And the elders came up to me and they said, will you be our pastor? And I said, no. And I can't tell you how ill-equipped, because I really admired this guy theologically. And I thought, I'm no match for him theologically. I, I told him, I go, I think I'm nicer than him. I think I'm a nicer guy than he is. But I'm not, I don't think I can match him theologically. And so I go, I, I was like, I don't think so. And then all their wives came up to me, because I knew all their wives. And they're like, we really want you to be our pastor. And I'm like, all right, the women have spoken. I'm in. <laughs> so here I was. And as uh, Alan mentioned, I had really had attended, I attended Talbot. I attended King's College. I had a short stint at Westminster. I mean, I started attending. I didn't do Fuller until later when I was taking, it was just it was convenient to take my Greek there. But, you know, it's an advantage, you know, to go to these places because you figure out what they're, what's going on out there. I'd advise people not to go to Fuller until you're 50. <laughs> you know, when you're set in your ways, 50 years old, and you can handle it because it's just all over. You know, and, of course, Talbot is just like Dallas Seminary. It's just a full-on dispensation, although it's kind of got its own little issues now. Nonetheless, as time I was educating myself. And here's what happened. I felt like I was on a pretty good roll. And I, I, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I started, you know, I started doing things I think God wanted me to do. I really believed the Bible. I was, I was not, as a non-reformed Christian, um, apostate. I wasn't unregenerate. I was, I was just, I just had, didn't have good instruction. And, and, there were, and nobody was tapping to me on the shoulder. Because I'll tell you one thing, I've got a lot of weaknesses. And I've got my strengths and I've got my weaknesses. You know, I, my, one of my strengths is I'm not a controlling personality. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's, I'm not a micromanager. My weakness is I'd rather be at the beach than micromanaging. <laughs> you know, we all got our good points, our strong, strong, weak things, you know. But one of the things is I've always been very open to instruction. I've had some great coaches in my life, world world-class coaches, the coach of who, my decathlon coach, Coach Daly Thompson, who was a two-time Olympic gold medalist. I've lived with world record holders. I've lived with gold medalists. I've had, I've rubbed elbows with people who know exactly what they're talking about, and I know to keep my mouth shut and listen when somebody's telling me something and, and to learn. And I've always been open to that. But nobody was coming up to me and saying, look at it, you're, say, you're saying this wrong. This is incorrect. And the only time somebody did do that was the pastor I was telling you about who talked me out of my Arminianism. And it took me about a year to become a five-point Calvinist. But that was as far as my Reformed thinking went. That was 26 years ago. So here's how it happened. I had preached, I took the pastor of this church and I preached through John. And, uh, you know, I did an okay job. It wasn't, I guess, I don't know. You ever listen to an old sermon? and cringe at the, what, the things you maybe said so long ago. But I think I did an okay job through John. And then I decided, I think I'll preach through Revelation. How, <laughs> how hard could it be? <laughs> and I just, I'm like, all right, I'm going to preach through Revelation. You know, and I, I thought I'd approach it the same way that I approach, you know, other books in the Bible. You know, I'd read it a few times, and then I'd kind of look at chunks of it, and I'd you know, do as much Greek as I could handle, and then I'd look at what the commentator said, and I, you know, I'd go down that road. And I did okay, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, you know, the seven letters, seven churches. I was doing okay. Now looking back, I think I was wrong, but I was doing okay. <laughs> and then I got into chapters 4, 5, and 6. And if you've studied the Revelation, you know that that's just, that is a dividing line, Okay. And um, I had something happen to me in the pulpit that has never happened since at that level. 
I, was, uh, I forget exactly where I was, but I remember this. My commentators that I was using were all dispensational. You know, Walvoord and Zuck and these guys, you know. And I, I, think commenta- I think commentators are valuable. I mean, I, use, I still use Calvin, and I use, I mean, I use the commentators, you know, I, Hendrickson and different guys, you know, I think are, are good. Some I agree with, some I don't. I still use Walvoord and Zuck just to see what they're going to say. It's not like everything they say is wrong, you know, some of the stuff they say is valuable. But here's the way I view a commentator or a commentary. Somebody comes up and asks you a riddle. You know riddles, right? There's, uh, there's, there's uh, two guys standing in front of two doors. One guy always tells the truth. One guy always lies. One door leads to die, life. The other door leads to death. You can ask one guy one question. What do you ask? Okay, that's a riddle. That's a real one. Now, you, you ask me a riddle like that, I'm gonna, I'll be like, don't tell me the answer. I'll go days and days and days to try to figure it out. But you know one thing, funny thing about riddles is, when you hear the answer, it's so easy. When you hear the answer, you're like, oh, you know, more times than not, when you hear the answer, it's like, oh, I get it. It's not like when you hear the answer, you go, what? What? what you? you know, the answer makes it clear to you. That's the way I view commentaries. I'm reading the passage, reading the passage. I'm like, what are they talking about? I'm having a hard time. Then you read the commentary and you're like, oh, that's what Italians do that. That's why they have flat foreheads and high shoulders. (laughs) And if I were Italian, I'd get in a lot of trouble for that. So I, uh, I got to a place in that sermon. See, also, when you move around a lot, when you talk, you, the equipment just gets, you decimate it. This pulpit will be gone, but actually, I don't really move around that much compared to other relatives of mine who could chop a salad while they're t- talking. So I got to a certain place, and I made a statement in the sermon. All right, so I'm in Revelation. I make the statement, and I was so convicted. I mean, I felt so guilty. And I stopped and I said, let me just tell you something. I just mentioned, I just, I just gave that interpretation of that verse. And let me just tell you something. I, I told my congregation, I don't see that at all. I go, all I've done just now is parrot what a commentator said. And I apologized and I ended the sermon early. Surprisingly, no one complained. But I just, uh, you know, and I shut, the, I shut Revelation, and I did not teach on it for five years. I, I read, I read everything. I mean, I, I can't tell you how guilty I felt that I did that. That I didn't let somebody give me some clarity. What I did was I just used them because I didn't know the answer. And uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't have the humility to just go, you know what, I don't know this. I don't understand it. I just thought, okay, I'll quote this, and I'll say, because this guy obviously does. And I ended the sermon, and that was that. But there was a guy in our church who uh, unwittingly led our church in a most wonderful direction. But he didn't do it, you know, talk about how the Lord uses everything for his own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of of evil. Um, This man came after me with both barrels. I mean, he tried to land on me with both feet. He was a rabid premillennial dispensationalist kind of Hal Lindsey guy. And he just, I don't know if you, how, how familiar you are with that camp, but there is built into that theology, there is a built-in accusation against anybody who doesn't agree with them. There's a movie called The Thief in the Night. Anybody ever seen that, Thief in the Night? Okay. In that movie, okay, most of you probably haven't seen it in years, right? It's been a long time, right? But there's a pastor who survives... You know, he's not raptured, right? He doesn't get raptured. He's left behind. That'd be a good name for a series. <laughs> he's left behind. By the way, when I was uh, when I was uh, being quizzed, quizzed at uh, 
you know, presbytery by the credential committee, somebody asked me if I had any novel theology, and I said, well, you mean like left behind? And, uh, and nobody got it. They're like, like wow, this is really not a fun denomination. <laughs> but the, guy, the pastor who's left behind is the pastor who's not the premillennial dispensationalist. He's the one who led his church astray. Of course, you know, they do give him, you know, his props because he survives and he becomes a tribulation saint. So he's brave enough to do that. So all of us, we're the villain. You know, all the pastors, we're the villain in that movie. We're the one who led the congregation astray. Well, this guy really believed it. He, he was not, again, he was not some young guy. He was in his 40s. And he went after me and he accused me. And, I'm, and all I'm saying at this point is, I just don't know what I think. I just don't see that. I didn't even have a position. I don't know what I am. I just don't see that. And his wife said, that's because you're a blockhead. <laughs> I'm like, okay, may, and maybe I am. You know, but I, I, what, that's all I got to work with. You know? <laughs> and he, this guy, tried to get our church, everybody to leave. He accused our, our, me of being a cult leader. He, accused, he said our church was a cult and uh, I'll tell you something, uh, that was probably one of, I mean, you th- as a pastor, there are certain things that you don't ever want, you know, that are hard, you know, church disciplinary actions are hard. But one of the things you never, I don't think ever want to hear is that you're a cult leader. And I, he said that, he goes, you know, you're a cult, and he's handing out flyers, trying to get people to leave our church and trying to destroy our church. And you know what, I found in my life that conflict is a healthy thing. I think conflict is a, it can be a very good thing. I, it's one of the reasons I enjoy sports. I've always enjoyed coaching. Not because I like beating, but because I like... You've got this artificial environment where you can teach people how to properly respond to their emotions and their feelings. I've always liked that about, about sports. Because it all comes out. You know, I tell young women who want to marry a guy, I go, well, have you watched them play basketball? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson said, you learn more about a person through an hour of play than through a year of conversation. Watch people in those environments, and you learn a lot about them. I know that I, even to this day I play sports, and it brings things out in me, and I'm like going, I feel like yelling at my partner. I feel like yelling at the referee. I feel like, yeah, I feel like you know, quitting and stomping off, and I, I can practice in a fake environment the things that are important in a real environment. And it was the same thing here. I got this guy who hit me with these accusations, and your first inclination would be to attack back, Right? And that, he certainly deserved it. I mean, he was, out of, he was out of line. He truly was. But I just listened. And we had an elders meeting. And I sat down with all of my elders, the elders of our church, you know, at the time. And I said, you know what? This guy's accused us of being a cult. How do we know that we're not? Now, I didn't think we were. But I, I wanted to throw that out to our elder board and go, how do we know we're not a cult? Because here we are, this non-denominational church, Get the yellow pages and look at non-denominational churches and see what you find. Because a lot of them are cults. Or they certainly aren't within the realm of Orthodox Christianity. And so uh, another thing that that kind of attack does is it pushes you to the books. You know, Modern Reformation, Modern Reformation came out with a, a, um, a title in front of the, one of their um, magazines that said, excuse me, uh, Our Debt to Heresy our debt to heresy. And I think the basic theme there was that it's the heretics who have, ri- who have risen up in history that have caused the church to respond and say and proclaim those things that are important to be heard. And so there was a debt, really, in a certain sense, that we had to this man because it forced us to go, where do we fit in the history of the church? We think we're doing biblical things, but when it gets right down to it, guess what our confession was? It was me. It was whatever I thought the Bible said on any given Sunday. I was the confession. And I was, hope, I was trying to do the right thing. I wasn't purposely saying the wrong thing. So we started studying the confessions. Well, we started looking at, you know, I mean, what's interesting about the confessions is they're all, you know, they're all reformed. You know, like they're all Calvinistic, you know, you know, some of, you got the London Baptist Confession. You know, some of them are Baptists. When you get right down to it, all the confessions, the ones at least that have, you know, because some confessions you realize came and went because they were dealing with a specific issue. But the ones that are still here are all 
they're all kind of the same. You know, some are more thorough or less thorough, and they, you know, give you the Westminster had a, you know. So we started reading the Confessions, really for the first time. I've been in the ministry at the time, I don't know, 20 years. And I'm reading the Confessions. Now, I'm no genius, but I think I'm smart enough to know genius when I see it. And I'm looking at this, and I thought to myself, these guys are really smart. Where has this stuff been? Here I'm reading, you know, more than a carpenter. And so, and what's this? Who's been hiding this material from me? Now, I'm almost at the end of my talk for this evening. And if Al wouldn't have gone so long, I would have talked. No, just kidding. <laughs> and so, but, he, but see, now, now, now here I am, pretty much at where everybody in this room is, right? Now, theologically, I've come to that place where all you, you know, you guys were catechized and, you know, and, and, and you've been brought up in such a way to understand sound biblical doctrine. I'm just there, you know, and we're talking 14 years ago, 12 years ago. Now where do I go? Because, you know, it, seemed, it didn't seem right to me, at least after reading the confession, for me to just drag the church in a direction that I thought was right. Uh, We had a reasonably biblical ecclesiology, and that is we had an elder board. So I sat down with the elders, and we started talking about these things. Um, Anybody ever heard of Bob Dylan, the great theologian Bob Dylan? (laughs) One of my best friends is his bass player, and so I get the inside scoop. Obviously, there's some funny stuff about him, but he has a, a line in a song that I think is really a valuable line. It says, I will know my song well before I start singing. And I thought, okay, we need to know what we're talking about before we get up here and start saying, hey, everybody, guess what? We're, we're a different church. Guess what? You know, everybody now, all of you who believed, all of you now believe what it took me 15 years to figure out. You all believe it now. Welcome to Reformation theology. Because I know of pastor friends of mine who've gone down that road and decimated the church because of a poor, quite frankly, a poor ecclesiology. And that is that there is a process. It's not my church. You know, it's not a monarchy. It's not, I'm not Pope Paul. I'm Pastor Paul. And so there's a process that needs to take place. And so there's this this semper reformata that had to start taking place. So there was a long, slow presentation. A long, slow presentation. What I would start doing was, you know, I was still preaching exegetically, but I would start leaking things out or emphasizing things that I hadn't really seen before but were so clear in the text. I'll give you an example. I was... I was a paedo-baptist for three years before I baptized my first baby. Now, I quit doing infant dedications because I just, uh, I just viewed it as unbiblical. I, 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 my, I, my morals just wouldn't allow it. My conscience wouldn't allow it. But I couldn't baptize infants because our church didn't have that policy. I wasn't going to just go, hey, my conscience is dictating what this church is going to practice. I couldn't do that. The elders had to be convinced of it. And I started talking to the congregation and I'd say things like, this is, see this verse right here talking about covenant children and blah, blah, blah. This is why some churches baptize their children. This is why a lot of churches view their children as part of the covenant family and not as Philistines or pagans. They view them as part of the family of God. And then all of a sudden, guess what happened? People started coming up to me going, if that's the case, why don't we baptize our children? (laughs) And then it was a matter of getting together. Because we really had this kind of strict elder rule thing going where it was just like if the elders all agreed, and it had to be unanimous, you know, but if the elders all agreed, we would do that. We would make that policy. And I gave an infant baptism sermon. And uh, and the next week we started practicing paedo-baptism. And one one family left our church. And we, anyway, we have a church of, you know, 300 people or so. One family left. And they didn't leave in a mean-spirited way. They were like, you know what, we heard your argument. 
we're just Baptists, and we're going to stay Baptists. And we're like, all right. You know, and I, I told him, I go, you know what? We're the ones who change, not you. You know, I have, to, I have to respect that. I disagree, but I understand. If that's your position, that's your position. But it was a long, slow process, and it was a tricky thing because I had to make sure that I wasn't violating my own conscience, that I wasn't violating what I believed to be right, yet at the same time I had to recognize that it's not my church. Well, as time has gone over the years, I have found that uh, many pastors, many people have kind of led um, their people in my direction to deal with this, to deal with bringing people down that path, that path uh, which leads from, quite frankly, a a, a flimsy, very shakable, not well-thought-out Christianity to the Christianity that we recognize to be sound, historic, confessional, Protestant, biblical Christianity. And it's going to be my goal this week uh, to present to you what I think to be the highlights of those issues, like the main issues, not only what the issues are, what they're thinking, and I don't, I'm not going to engage too much on what we think, because I think we all agree on pretty much most of the things I'm going to talk about, but I'm, what, what's, what the thought is out there and how to engage it. How to engage that thinking without immediately you know, annihilating the conversation before it even gets rolling. And my goal, my, truly my goal is, I, I feel... You know, when I came to the OPC, and all our, all our elders feel this way, we feel like we found this, like, diamond. We, we found this, like, what is this place? This is just like, you know, and I get to call people up, and, you know, I, I get to talk to Al and ask him questions, and I get to call up, you know, BJ and, uh, and Roger, and I'm, I'm like, hey, what, what should I do? It's just like I found that I've just mined this wonderful field, and I feel like uh, I want to share the wealth. I've talked to my buddy. His church is one of the top 20 growing churches in America. I've talked to him about joining the OPC. <laughs> it gets a little quiet. <laughs> but that's the goal. And hopefully God will give us all grace to learn these things this week. Please join me in closing prayer. Father God, we do thank you that you've granted us such wonderful news. First and foremost, Father, that It is our chief purpose to bring glory to Your holy name. And Father, that there is nothing more glorious than the cross of Christ. Help us, Father, to bring that news not only to our unbelieving friends, but to our our Christian friends who perhaps haven't uh, been exposed to that, those rich things, Father, that You've preserved for uh, for the nourishment of Your people and for Your own glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen.